verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're so grateful to come to your word this morning. Uh, You truly have the words of life, and uh, we just ask that you would penetrate our hearts this morning. I want to pray particularly, Father, for those who are suffering this morning, those who are in despair or discouraged. May you, Holy Spirit, do your work in their hearts like a, a master surgeon as you apply these truths to them who need encouragement in healing in transforming ways for all of us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as Nate mentioned, we're excited to start a new series uh, today. When, when the elders discuss and pray about future preaching series, we always like to consider at least two things. Uh, first, as Paul says to the Ephesian elders in, in Acts chapter 20, we want to preach the whole counsel of God. So over a several-year period, we want to make sure we're hitting on all parts of the Bible to get, a, to get a comprehensive picture of God's redemption story. And secondly, we want to consider where we are as a church. Uh, this Sunday marks our second birthday as Orchard Bible Church. And uh, we've been through a lot together already, haven't we? Um, we've... Uh, been enjoying each other's fellowship for four years uh, as we started as a church plant from Littleton Bible Chapel, and now two years as, as Orchard Bible Church. And we wanted to think about what, what, what is needed for our body of believers uh, at this stage. And we were in complete unity that for Orchard right now, what we'd love to have is a fresh vision for how our suffering in this life now relates to the glory that will come In Christ Jesus. And Peter's first letter is tailor made for that purpose. So we're humbled uh, to have God's word speak to us for the next several months, going into, I think it's March of next year, from the book of 1 Peter. And uh, over the course of our series, we're going to consider a number of themes of our journey from suffering to glory. Uh, Most importantly, of course, the magisterial gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll consider salvation through him and what he's done, something the angels marvel at, uh, our future inheritance and glory reserved for us by Christ. We will consider Christ's suffering for us and what he accomplished as our Savior, but also how he handled himself in his suffering as an example for us and how we can suffer well. We'll consider what it means to be holy and separate from the ways of this world because of who we are in Christ. What it means to feast on the word of God and grow in the knowledge of the Savior. We'll consider what it means to be a good employee at your job when you have a tough boss. Or what it means to be a good husband, a good wife when your marriage is struggling. 
What it means to be an evangelist in the midst of your suffering. How, how can you be ready to defend the hope that is in you, in Jesus, when asked by unbelievers? We'll consider what it means to submit to one another in the context of the church and attitudes important in church leadership. What it means to cast our anxieties upon the Lord. What it means to fight the good fight in the faith as spiritual forces of darkness seek to destroy us. In all these things, we will consider what it means to go through this life as a servant of Jesus Christ, following him from suffering to glory. This is an incredible letter. And its author, of course, is is Peter, as he identifies himself here in verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This Peter was first among equals of the disciples of Jesus, as we see in the Gospels. Even among the inner circle of the three with James and John, Peter is foremost. It seems he was an outspoken and impetuous man. One time he even confronted Jesus on that this road of suffering and death was not the right road for him. And Peter learned the hard way that suffering is part of God's plan, not just for the Messiah, but for him. Indeed, for all of Jesus' followers from one degree to another. Peter, of course, also denied the Lord three times on that painful night from Gethsemane to Golgotha. But he was then restored so beautifully by Jesus himself to a a leadership position in the early church. We studied his prominent role a couple of years ago when we went through the book of Acts. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered and guided by him. And he has a lot to tell us in this letter. We're just going to look at the first two verses this morning. And uh, before we dive into the text, I want to mention, as we typically do at the beginning of a series, a couple of helpful aids in your own study of this book. It's always good. We always recommend that you look ahead and and your bulletin always has next week's uh, passage. So reading that, contemplating, praying about that, and using a good study Bible or, or commentary to help you. Um, I'll just mention a couple of mid-level sort of non-technical commentaries that might be helpful. Wayne Grudem uh, wrote the the Tyndale New Testament commentary on 1 Peter. Very brief commentary, but very helpful, packed with with notes. The second one is in the John Stott-edited Bible Speaks Today series. Edmund Clowney, the great preacher and scholar out of Westminster, has a great devotional style commentary that I would recommend as well. Again, many good study Bibles that will enrich uh, your reading of this letter as we go through it together. So as I mentioned, verses 1 and 2, Peter starts his letter with some important truths about our identity as believers in Jesus Christ. And you can follow along, which I recommend in, in your outline, in your bulletin, First, number one, Peter wants Christians to understand that we were chosen by God. He says, to those who are elect. So Peter starts his letter hitting on one of the most controversial doctrines in our day, the doctrine of election. 
uh, interpreted one way, the, the idea that God is completely sovereign over our salvation, the belief that scripture teaches the following. If you're a Christian, the ultimate reason or cause for that lies not in a choice that you made, though you needed to make one, but ultimately in a choice that God made. And it's interesting that Peter states this with no apology or explanation. We see this theme in other places in scripture like John 6, where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I want to just consider a few things about this concept of our election. First, it's very important to remember when you consider this concept that Peter is encouraging his readers. He's writing this to encourage Christians who are experiencing difficult times. And he starts his encouragement right off the bat by telling them there are God's elect. So if this doctrine makes you angry, you're not understanding Peter correctly. Likewise, if this doctrine makes you smug or proud, then you haven't understood Peter correctly either. The idea that God chose us is something that should humble us. Who am I that he should save me? God chose them. This is encouraging and humbling. This is not to say they didn't have to respond to the gospel. Of course they did. This is not to say that evangelism is not important. Of course it is. No one becomes a Christian apart from hearing and responding to the gospel. I think it's best to view it as a backward look on your conversion. Something that was ultimately rooted in God's sovereign grace toward you. Grace to you before you were even born. Now, there is an abundance of misunderstanding about this doctrine. And there are unfair caricatures about people who believe this doctrine. And there are also unfair caricatures about godly people who don't believe this doctrine. There can be unfairness on both sides, and I want to be sensitive to that. In my Christian life, for instance, I've been on both sides of this issue more than once. And though I do not like these labels myself, I think they're unhelpful, but for our purposes today, I think it's efficient to use some categories with which you may be familiar. Two camps we generally hear about are Calvinism, named after John Calvin, And Arminianism, which has nothing to do with the Republic of Armenia, but rather has a lot to do with a man named Jacob Arminius. And in general, both affirm that Scripture teaches that we are elect and we are chosen. These are undeniably biblical words. They would just define those concepts differently. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I just... I think it's important to spend some time on this for the sake of unity. Okay, so that's my heart in this. And I will have to make some generalizations. Calvinists generally affirm that believers were chosen individually by God. The elect are those individually chosen to be saved from ages past. Arminians, on the other hand, generally affirm that believers were either either chosen in a corporate sense. In other words, Christ was chosen. Christ was the vessel chosen to save people. And if we are in Christ, 
we are chosen. So Christ is chosen, but not individuals. Or other Arminians might say that if God did choose individuals, it's only based on his foreknowledge about whether or not they would believe. That's what it's based on. Now, there are a number of important things to consider about this. And first and most importantly, this is an in-house debate. Okay, neither of these positions are heretical. Now, of course, they cannot both be true. They cannot both be right. They can both be wrong, maybe, but not both be right. But this is important for us today. You can be wrong about something in the Bible without being heretical. And that's important to understand that there's varying degrees of differences. Both of these positions can be argued from Scripture. In other words, these things should not divide a church, brothers and sisters. Okay? Only when either one of these positions is taken to an extreme, which can happen on both sides, only then is it dangerous. Let me explain what I mean by that. If someone were to say, I believe God chooses who will be saved individually, well, it's a biblically justified true statement. But if they go on to say, since God chooses, there's no need for me to evangelize. Well, that is an unbiblical and dangerous belief, what we might call hyper-Calvinism. Those who would say, the old ditty goes, were the Lord's elected few, let all the rest be damned. There's room in hell enough for you. We don't want heaven crammed. That's obviously an unbiblical view. Instead, election should foster humility and thanksgiving. John Newton a strong believer in individual election. This is what he wrote. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's the right attitude about being chosen. Likewise, there are extreme positions on the other end of the spectrum. If someone were to say, for instance, hey, the reason I'm saved is that I responded to the gospel and I believed and trusted in Christ. That's a biblically true statement. But if they go on to say, I chose to believe, therefore I take credit for my salvation. Well, that's also unbiblical and dangerous belief. Only God gets the, any glory in our salvation. No one can boast, Ephesians 2. So we certainly cannot take credit for our salvation. That's what we might call hyper-Arminianism. But on the biblically justified positions, I think a great conciliatory attitude for this in-house debate is demonstrated in a conversation centuries ago between two amazingly godly men, Charles Simeon and John Wesley. Simeon was a Calvinist, and Wesley, one of the greatest evangelists of all time, was Arminian. Here's the exchange. Simeon, speaking to Wesley, sir... I understand that you are called an Arminian, and I have been sometimes called a Calvinist, and therefore I suppose we are to draw daggers. But before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Pray, sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put it in your heart? Wesley, yes. I do indeed. Simeon, and do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? 
Wesley, yes, solely through Christ. Simeon, but sir, supposing you were first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? Wesley, no. I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Simeon, allowing them that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? Wesley, no. Simeon, what then? Are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God as much as an infant in its mother's arms? Wesley, yes, altogether. Simeon, and all your hope is in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you unto his heavenly kingdom? Wesley, yes, I have no hope but in him. Simeon, then sir, with your leave, I will put up my dagger again. For this is all my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold and as I hold it. And therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be the ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. Brothers and sisters, we need more of that attitude in the broader church today. I love their concern, don't you, for peacemaking regarding secondary doctrinal disagreements. My own son, middle name is Wesley, and that's because of my admiration for this great evangelist. But on this issue of election, I'm more aligned with Simeon. There are godly people on both sides, and these things should not divide us. Now, everyone acknowledges that there is an undeniable mystery here. Scripture is clear, for instance, that you have to respond to the gospel to be saved. If you don't respond, you remain in your sins under the wrath of God. Looking back, however, if you're saved, he chose you, praise God. Now, I don't understand how his sovereignty works with our decisions exactly, and honestly, I don't expect to understand that. Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to God. Should we, the creatures, really expect to fully understand the ways of the creator? I will end this point. Hopefully it wasn't too long for some of you. I'll end this point with a very important quote from Evelyn Underhill. Listen to what she says. If God were small enough to be understood, let me start over, this is great. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. Amen to that. Brothers and sisters, this is who you are. You were chosen by God. If you're in Christ, consider that we are the elect. Consider that God chose you by his unexplainable grace. And let that truth make you not arrogant, but worshipful, humble, thankful, and encouraged this morning. Now, there's a second aspect of the Christian's identity And this aspect is essential to making sense of our lives on this earth. And that is the fact that we are not home yet. We are exiles. This is letter B. Peter addresses his audience as exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So let's unpack this. 
This word dispersion or diaspora is reminiscent of the diaspora, as it's called, the, the, where God's people, the Jews in the Old Testament, with the captivity and through the exile, they were dispersed throughout lands not their own. Remember in the Old Covenant, the people of God centered around Israel. Well, Peter has come to understand with the New Covenant that the center, uh, the, the, the locus of the people of God now is centered around the true Israel, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile, one people of God through Jesus, the church. So the, re- the regions, he mentions, are in modern-day Turkey and probably original recipients of the original letter. So Peter is painting a picture here that is very important to understand, not only to understand the rest of his letter, but really to understand the Christian life. Metaphorically, Christians, Jews and Gentiles, are dispersed throughout the world in lands not their own. We are not home. Our citizenship is in heaven. The late R.C. Sproul told a great story where he and his wife were traveling by train through Romania. And they stopped at one of the stations and exited the train, and R.C. was carrying his Bible. And he gave his passport to the official. And the official noticed he was carrying a Bible, and he said, you know American. And and R.C. was puzzled. He pointed to his passport. He had a valid passport. And the official pointed to his Bible and said, you know American. And R.C. thought, oh, here we go. (laughs) So the official motioned for his Bible, and R.C. gave it to him. And the man took it, opened it up, paged through it. Then he stopped in Ephesians 2. And he said, you know American. I know Romanian. We citizens of heaven. (laughs) So regardless of where we live as Christians or our cultures, we're members of a new people group with citizenship in heaven. And no matter where we temporarily live now on earth, we are exiles. Now, just because our citizenship is in heaven doesn't mean we're supposed to check out of this world. Remember, Paul teaches us that we're also ambassadors for Christ and we're looking to make more citizens of heaven as we march toward the heavenly city. We're we're sort of on that great pilgrimage toward our destination like John Bunyan's famous allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. And this idea of being in exile helps us understand our lives in this world. We shouldn't expect things to be right. We're not home We're in a foreign land, a hostile land. And as we will see later in this letter, we're distinct from the world. And the fact that we are elect of God is the reason we're exiles. We will appear strange to those in the world because of our new identity. Think about when you you spend any time with someone from a completely different culture or citizenship, you notice pretty quickly that they act and think somewhat differently, don't they? As a citizen of heaven, your values, your priorities, your motivations, everything will appear somewhat strange to those engrossed in the ways of the world. Let me be as clear as I can. If unbelievers don't notice that you're strange in some way, there's something wrong. You're probably trying too hard to be a resident of this world 
instead of embracing your identity as an exile. Again, being an exile gives us a key to the whole letter. We shouldn't expect things to go great when we're living away from home. Now, just because we're exiles doesn't mean we're lone rangers in the desert either. Peter writes to these scattered Christians as a community. The church is essential to to go through this pilgrimage together. We need each other anchored in Christ. Our collective hope is anchored in our homeland. And we will see in future weeks, our future hope is already sealed. It is certain. It is a present reality because it is rooted in something that's already happened, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But because we're elect and citizens of heaven, we will be treated differently, and we should expect that. Scholar Karen Jobes says this about Peter's original audience. Because of their faith in Christ, they were being persecuted through social ostracism, end quote. Because of their new relationship with God, their relationship with their society is troubled as a result. Becoming a citizen of heaven means you become a foreigner with respect to society. That's a consequence of being chosen to participate in the new covenant. So this phrase, elect exiles, demonstrates the complexity of our life in Christ, doesn't it? You see, many Christians are taught only about the glories of being elect. So they expect to experience only the joys of being God's chosen people. And they're surprised by the difficulties in this life because they have been taught nothing about the fact that we're in exile. Well, Peter corrects this misunderstanding. We are elect, praise God, But we are elect exiles. We're not home. We're in a foreign, hostile land in a society that thinks and behaves nothing like we do, and we should expect to be treated accordingly. Consider how the world responded to Jesus. So as we follow him from suffering to glory, let's embrace who we are in Christ and recalibrate, if we need to, our expectations of how comfortable We will be in this foreign world. Letter C, chosen how? How are we chosen? According, verse 2, to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now here again, we hit on a little of the debate I discussed earlier, so I don't want to revisit that besides just to say this. Some believe that foreknowledge here means that God looked down the corridors of time to see ahead of time who would believe and then based his choosing according to those future decisions. Now, there's no question that his knowledge of the future is included in this concept. The question is whether foreknowledge means more than that. Does it mean something stronger than just passively looking into the future? Something more active like ordaining? And I think it does, and here are some reasons why. Later in verse 20, Peter says the son was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Jesus was foreknown. Well, God didn't choose Jesus to be the Savior just by looking into the future and seeing that he would be a redeemer and therefore choosing him. I don't think that interpretation works. Better, I think, 
to see that he ordained that Jesus would be the redeemer. There's also an important context from the Old Testament about the root word knowledge. And it implies a relationship of intimacy. God says to Jeremiah, for instance, before I formed you, I knew you. So in this concept of knowing in the Old Testament, sometimes even involved sexual intimacy, a man knowing his wife. So it seems right to think about God's foreknowledge as not just having prior information about someone, but relational, a special covenantal kind of knowing or loving, predetermining or ordaining a relationship with someone. Again, different legitimate views on this, but here's the bottom line that I want to focus on today. You are not a Christian merely by your own decision, but by the initiative of God who has called you and loved you long before you loved him. Secondly, next part of verse two, we are chosen in the sanctification of the spirit. This refers to the Holy Spirit who applies the work of salvation to us personally. This word sanctification covers a range of activity. At a minimum, it refers to the initial cleansing or regeneration of the Spirit when we're born again. When we, at the time we understand and believe the gospel that Jesus is Lord receiving him as Savior through his death and resurrection, when we believe and receive his forgiveness and give our lives to him, we're a new creation. We're born again. The Holy Spirit does that to us. He gives us a new nature with new desires and attitudes. But sanctification really only begins there. It begins at conversion. The Holy Spirit is instrumental from the beginning to the end of our journey. He works through our regeneration, as we mentioned, Titus 3, in our initial faith, Ephesians 2. The Holy Spirit works in our repentance, Acts 11. He works in our adoption as sons and daughters into the family of God, Romans 8. The Holy Spirit continues to transform the believer throughout their earthly lives, conforming them into the likeness of Christ, ultimately in our glorification, in that great future day when our old sin nature will be gone forever and our journey from suffering to glory is completed. So the application of what Christ has done for us on the cross is done to us by the Holy Spirit. So we're chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. Well, what for? For what purpose are we chosen? This is the third part of verse two. For obedience to Jesus Christ. Well, this is important, isn't it? We're not chosen in order to remain living like we were before. We're not chosen to continue to blend into the world. We're not chosen to continue doing things the way our sinful nature wants to do. We're not chosen to live for ourselves. We were chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not not of ourselves, not of our works, but we were saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So belief in Christ... It's not just an intellectual acceptance that the gospel is true and that its claims about Jesus are accurate. It's much more than that. It involves the heart and the will. 
It results in obedience, a changed life. This will be critical as we go forward in the letter to remember why we were chosen. Not just to sit back, but chosen to be different. Chosen to be holy. Chosen to live lives in the Spirit's power for obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience at work, in our jobs. Obedience in our marriage. Obedience as parents. Obedience in our extended family. Obedience in our relationships and activity in the church. Obedience as we engage our neighbors and unbelievers. God chooses us to serve him. We are to obey Jesus Christ until the day of his appearing. And the second purpose we see is for sprinkling with his blood. Here's a phrase that we have most likely here an allusion to Exodus 24. When Moses is speaking to the people about the covenant God was making with them, two things happened there in that chapter 24 of Exodus. There was a pledge of obedience and a sprinkling of blood, the blood sacrifices on the altar. So first, the people pledge obedience to God, saying this, Exodus 24, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. This signifies the obedience they're pledging to the Lord. Then, Moses sprinkles blood on the people, saying, behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you. This signifies the forgiveness and the cleansing the people will need in order to be in right relationship with their holy God. So two aspects of the old covenant in Exodus 24, obedience and the sprinkling of blood. They pledge to obey the Lord and also given the means of forgiveness and cleansing through the blood sacrifices. Likewise, in our passage this morning with the new covenant, we obey the Lord Jesus and we're forgiven by the Lord in the blood sacrifice of himself obedience and sprinkling of blood. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. Obedience, forgiveness. These must go together. If you try to obey the Lord without being cleansed by his sacrifice, your deeds are like filthy rags, the Bible says, and you're not a Christian. Likewise, if you claim forgiveness, that he's your Savior, but continue to live however you want, not submitting to his Lordship, You're not a Christian either. You're only God's elect if Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. Now, before moving on, I want you to notice something kind of cool, if I can use that word from the pulpit. If that still, does that still preach in in today's, I don't know. My son would say something different, but I don't think it would be appropriate. Um, The Trinity. I want you to notice the Trinity. All three members of the Godhead are active in our salvation this passage. The Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, the Son cleanses. Karen Job says this, Our salvation begins in the heart of God the Father, is made operative in our lives by the Holy Spirit, and is evidenced through personal expressions of faith in Jesus. Excellent summary. So in these two verses, hope you can see this, Peter has masterfully teed up this letter to Christians who are going through difficult times and need to hear this. And I want to ask you, are you going through difficult times? Do you need to hear this this morning? Do you need to be reminded that God chose you, that he loved you from the very beginning, 
that he saved you through the sacrifice of his son. Dear brother, dear sister, if you're suffering this morning, he knows you'd rather be home with him. But he has you here in this strange world as an exile that doesn't understand you. And you're here for a reason. You're here to obey and serve Jesus Christ as Lord and to be a living testimony of the cleansing power of his blood. Listen to David Helm. Quote, In the strongest way possible, Peter has told us, the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and earth, is behind all of this. The hidden counsel of the eternal trinity has planned for us to be known as elect exiles. And he has done all of this through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. So take heart. Be encouraged. Christians that are chosen, Christians are those who are chosen by God and called to live in this world. There's something in this letter for every Christian, end quote. Well, well said. Very quickly, the last part of verse two. Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I just wanna go back to the big picture for a minute, especially if you're a guest with us, if this sanctification talk is new to you, maybe church is new to you. Just start with 101 fundamentals of Christianity. Grace and peace, you might say, are the pillars of, of the good news about Jesus, the Christian gospel. Our sin separates us from God, all of us. Our sin separates us from God, making us enemies of God. Grace has been described as God's love in action in Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners, sending Christ to die in the place of sinners. Peace is what Jesus provided through his death on the cross. By his death, he bore the judgment of God's just wrath against our sin and made peace between God and man. And this grace is available to you. This peace is available to you by repenting of your sins and pledging obedience to Jesus Christ, trusting in his death on the cross and resurrection For you, you can be sprinkled by his blood and have your sins forgiven. You can have peace with God. Please receive this grace if you haven't. This gift of forgiveness offered in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Would you do that today? Finally this morning, I want to close with our hope in our homeland. As elect exiles in this world, we naturally have a longing for home. There's a sense in which the normal Christian life might be described as feeling homesick for a place you've never been. As elect exiles in this world, we live in the hope of the resurrection, the confident expectation that some future day, Jesus will return and bring us home. But until that day, we live as strangers in this world, exiles, longing for home. And there are hints of home. As we sang this morning together as a body, I had hints of home. As you see the beauty of a sunset 
over the Rockies or taste really good food or enjoy excellent music. In times like these, something resonates and reminds us of our true home, but we can't fully embrace it, can we? Something separates us from fully entering into that enjoyment, and it's because we're not home. Or on the other hand, consider situations and conversations with those that are thinking of the world as the world would. And they say something that reminds you that you're completely out of touch with the thinking of this world. And it makes you miss home. Or you are experiencing pain. You're experiencing suffering this morning because of the brokenness of this world and you just want to go home. That's normal life for the Christian in exile. C.S. Lewis called it a lifelong nostalgia. He put it this way in his book, The Weight of Glory. Our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside. That's no neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. He continues in typical Lewis fashion, just masterful writing. He says, at present, we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. Then he says this. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Amen. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, recounts that familiar story about The prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, you remember the younger brother treats his father with contempt. He takes his share of the inheritance and squanders it on women and wine. And his selfish life of debauchery reaches its logical conclusion in a pigsty where among the pigs, he comes to his senses. He repents and heads for home. Keller says this, he longs for home Remembering the food in his father's house, so do we all, he says. There seems to be a sense then, Keller continues, in which we're all like the younger brother. We're all exiles, always longing for home. We're always traveling, but never arriving. The houses and families we actually inhabit are only inns along the way, but they aren't home. Something home continues to evade us. Keller's right. Exactly right. Home does evade us. We long for the new Jerusalem. We long for the presence of God. We long to see Jesus, don't we? We just want to go home. Well, as you remember, at the end of the story of the prodigal son, there's a feast of homecoming. So too at the end of book of Revelation, at the end of history as it were, there's a feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the city of God 
comes down from heaven to fill the earth. Death and decay and suffering are gone. The nation's no longer at war. We read in Revelation, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and he will make everything new. Brothers and sisters, hold fast. Christ will hold you fast. Our future is real and it is certain. Keller concludes, we will not flow through the air, but we will eat, embrace, and laugh, and dance in the kingdom of God. In degrees of power, glory, and joy that we cannot at present imagine. So dear Christian, if things don't seem right in this foreign land, let's not be surprised. If we're suffering and struggling, let's not be disillusioned. We're not home yet. You are in exile, always wandering, never arriving. But if you're in Christ this morning, praise God, you're also the elect. You are beloved of God from eternity past. And one day, you'll come home. And like the prodigal, the father will meet you and embrace you And you'll be brought into the feast, completing your journey from suffering to glory, enjoying him forever. Praise God. Please stand with me as we close this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace toward us. It's unexplainable. And thank you for this reminder this morning that we are in exile. We're not home, but we want to be. We cry, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, for those here this morning who are outside of this covenant, may they be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus this morning, turning to him for salvation. Where else can we go? May they declare Jesus as Lord, even today, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us strength as you tarry, Lord Jesus, to be obedient as elect exiles and ambassadors for you. In your name we pray and for your sake, amen.